Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me for another episode of Peach Pod today is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Uh, you know, sessions rolling right along. As you're listening to this, it's either crossover day or after crossover day. So, you know, fun times. Yeah, this is the first time it feels like things are really ramping up in the legislature with the calendar being meaningful. And maybe we'll actually talk about in some ways the calendar not being all that meaningful. Uh, But we are talking on Sunday afternoon, the day before crossover day. And so we're going to preview what is likely to come up in the legislature on crossover day and talk about some of the bills that have already passed the House and the Senate. um, So that aren't likely to play a role before crossover day, but are likely going to see some action prior to the end of legislative session. If you've been paying attention, the legislative session is going to end uh, at the end of March. Um, So we are going to be out of Atlanta. We're going to be done by April this time. Um, And it turns out there's probably going to be no large break uh, in session because luckily the legislature appears to have avoided a major COVID outbreak so far. Um, So we're going to do that on the second half of the show today, but we're going to start with news from Washington that the U.S. Senate has passed President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package. We're going to talk about how Georgia reps and senators position themselves on that package, the kind of messaging that you can expect from Georgia candidates touting that package, and maybe the kind of messaging we think they should be putting forward to tout that package. And then talk a little bit too about how the stimulus bill interacts with Georgia's status of distributing COVID-19 vaccines. There was a headline earlier this week from Georgia Public Broadcasting showing that Georgia was last in the nation among all states in distributing COVID-19 vaccines. A lot of criticism of the rollout continuing and, and some unanswered questions, I think, about how to get from where we are now to getting into a place where we can get the vaccine distributed more quickly, more effectively, and hopefully get life at least a little bit closer back to normal in the Peach State. Luke, let's start with uh, the stimulus bill, though. So on Saturday, the Senate passed Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. They passed a version that was different than what was passed in the House last week. So the bill does have one final hurdle to clear going back to the U.S. House before it ends up on Joe Biden's desk. But at this point, it pretty much looks like it's a done deal. It looks like there's no major hurdles left for this piece of legislation. And you could see over the weekend, Joe Biden and other leading Democrats sending the message to Georgians and to other people across the country that help is on the way. One thing, Luke, that as we think about this bill and the political process as it moves forward, is when you look back, you and I have referenced back to the uh, to the stimulus bill in the Great Recession at the beginning of the Obama administration. And one thing veterans of the Obama administration admit that they didn't do as well as they could have is they didn't market their efforts to save the economy in 2009 and 2010 as well as they could, and that led to that shellacking in the 2010 midterms. How do you think Georgia candidates, Georgia politicians, people who care about progressive policy in Georgia, how should they be selling the efforts in this stimulus plan um, and how it's going to help people in Georgia and people across the country? So I I think Democrats specifically, because the the Republicans won't have uh, much positive messaging uh, on this, will will be a lot easier than it was in uh, 2009 and 
2010 because the issues that are wrong with the economy this time are a lot more directed at individuals. The issues with uh, the economy back during the Great Recession were a lot more complicated and harder for people to understand, whereas like everyone understands what's wrong right now. There's a global pandemic and people are not uh, buying things or going out and doing things as much as uh, they, they would be otherwise. And so that part is helpful. And the other part that I think makes this a lot easier, especially for Georgia politicians, especially for Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff specifically, is that they aggressively campaigned on one issue the most, and that was getting the stimulus checks raised up to a total of $2,000. And so with this bill having those checks, I think it'll be pretty easy. You know, it's like you elected us to go to Washington and get you these checks, and here they are. Uh, so, you know, and, and that is also the most popular provision of, of this bill. So I, I think on that front, it'll be a lot easier because, so as compared with the Recovery Act, you know, of 2009, which aimed to, you know, fix the economy, pretty much everyone agrees, I mean, even some center-right economists agrees now that that was a program that was too small, the effects of it took a long time to really be felt. Whereas with the American Rescue Plan, there, I, I feel like the effects of it are going to be felt uh, quite quickly. I mean, the checks, obviously, you'll you'll see the checks come in, you will see them in your bank accounts uh, and experience that, but also the uh, vaccine distribution elements and all of the, I mean, much of this bill are things that the effects will be felt quite quickly. And I think that will be to the advantage politically of Democrats as well as to, you know, the advantage of greater society by getting these benefits and uh, fighting the virus. Yeah, Dan Pfeiffer of Crooked Media, former Obama administration communications person, um, he put out a a post on his newsletter talking about how everyone can contribute to selling the American Rescue Plan. One of the things that he mentioned in that post is that people like the American Rescue Plan, but they ought, they don't always know what's in it. Um, they must have a good sense of that concrete relief is coming their way, but it's helpful to outline for people some of the specific pieces of help that are coming because Democrats acted on this in Washington. Um, it includes the stimulus checks that we've talked about. It includes the things on unemployment insurance, on uh, funding for vaccines that we've talked about before. But there's also very specific help coming to renters, um, housing assistance that'll keep 12 million people in their homes. Um, there's also money for safely reopening schools and for helping schools Think about how they can make up for this lost year and uh, offset learning loss that has happened for students as they've been more tenuously connected to their schools. And then there's specifically more more help for small businesses, more help for restaurants that haven't really gotten the aid that they've needed um, from the previous rescue packages that were passed under the prior administration. Um, so I think you're right, Luke, that a lot of this is more concrete and it's the effect of that help is going to show up quickly for people. And, you know, we are right now, Luke and I are basically talking off of this post that's like messaging guidance to all of the uh, Obama Biden fans out there. And I don't love the idea of being the mouthpiece for the Biden administration. But I think if you're somebody who cares about progressive governance, moving progressive policies forward, 
one of the lessons from 2009, 2010 is not being shy about celebrating victories and letting people know which party delivered those victories, that relief to them, particularly in the middle of a crisis. Um, and it, you know, it is, it is my way and the way of a lot of commentators to look at how this fell short, how it could be better. Um, but I, I, especially with the size of this bill, the fact that it is $1.9 trillion in relief, I do think that it is useful, no matter how you feel about the Biden administration, to at least recognize that a major step forward was taken here. Yeah, I, I, well, I was going to say, I, I agree with that, <laughs> just because, you know, thinking back to how the Republicans message things that they do. I mean, whenever they get a Supreme Court justice on the court or they get a, a tax cut for millionaires and billionaires, I mean, they, they act like they have saved not only America, but the world in the eyes of, you know, whatever deity you believe. I, and it, it's it's good to, you know, follow that impulse to be like, well, this could have been better in X, Y, and Z ways. But I think it is important to just highlight, you know, the good things that it did do and to try to communicate those things so that people understand uh, the value of the work they put in by, you know, volunteering on campaigns, giving money, or even just showing up and voting. Because as we love to say on this program, elections have consequences. And so, you know, sometimes those consequences are good. And this is an example of that. The last piece before we move on to the messaging strategies that we've seen from our senators and, and some members of our delegation is the one thing I really don't want to get lost in all of this discussion around details and what made it in the final bill, what didn't make it in the final bill. This proposal will likely have the effect of reducing the child poverty rate by half, and it will likely reduce poverty among adults by at least 25%. And as we sit here in a pandemic where Democrats and progressives had have had to scrap and claw for every little bit of aid that they could get under the prior administration. It is important that one of the first major legislative successes of this administration is to make a huge down payment on the future of the nation's economy by making sure that fewer and fewer children grow up in poverty. And I think that is a major accomplishment that I that I really don't want to get lost. Obviously, we'd love to continue to have that rate go even lower for the number of children living in poverty. But there's been a lot of concern about the impact of the pandemic, the social isolation, the not being in schools on the future of children in this country. And I think probably the most important thing that may come out of this effort is looking at what impact it had to reduce the child poverty rate by half and to use that as the springboard to helping children recover from this crisis. So look, let's move on and talk a little bit about the messaging that we've seen from Reverend Warnock um, and uh, from some members of the delegation. I'm principally thinking of uh, House Representative Carolyn Bordeaux here. Um, For Warnock, who's a little more interesting because he's going to be on the ballot next year, um, but you've also seen basically the same message from John Ossoff. You've seen basically a full-throated embrace of the benefits that this legislation is going to provide, of the idea that help is on the way, and that Warnock and Ossoff delivered on the main 
campaign promise that they made during the runoff to get relief and stimulus checks into the hands of Georgians. Whereas for Carolyn Bordeaux, she has been supportive of the American Rescue Plan. She voted for it when it was on the House side. I would be very surprised if she voted against it when it goes back to the House for final passage. Um, And she's touted some of the benefits of the plan. But after the plan made it out of the House when it was in basically the final stage of negotiations, she also wrote a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, saying that the bill needed to be more targeted, that the support for unemployment insurance should decrease over time as the economy gets better, um, and that the stimulus check should go to a smaller number of people in a more targeted fashion. Um, And even when she touted her vote for the bill, she provided the caveat that this legislation is great, but it could have been more targeted and I'm still going to be working on that. Luke, I thought that was, you know, they're not on entirely different planets there. Both of those approaches support the bill. But Carolyn Bordeaux is much more caveated, whereas Warnock and also Ossoff's is a much more full-throated embrace of, of what was accomplished here. What do you think of that that split and in, in the strategic choices that might be made of those two different approaches? Well, the you know the place I would start is that probably is how they genuinely feel about the bill, <laughs> bill, <laughs> and that you know it is how they campaigned. I mean, Warnock campaigned as a full-throated supporter of progressive initiatives and a champion for this kind of direct relief to you know, the vast majority of Americans and and Bordeaux had a more nuanced position in her campaign. I think it also reflects their constituencies to a great deal. You know, Carolyn Bordeaux is in a very swing district. And while the state of Georgia overall is a swing state, uh, I think it reflects the reality that um, Warnock and Ossoff and any statewide Democrat considering a race faces, which is, I mean, it's a turnout game. It's a really hardcore turnout game. You have to excite a lot of voters all over the state with a clear and consistent message. Uh, And I think Warnock and Ossoff do that, whereas Bordeaux has a clear message. It's a little more nuanced, uh, but it, it, it does appeal to the people in her district, probably. And, you know, she... It's always hard to tell, you know, how exactly how many crossover votes someone gets. But to be successful in the long term... In that district, I imagine Carolyn Bordeaux would need to uh, be cognizant of the moderates in her district who uh, may be a little wary of spending a bunch of money. Uh, and you know that the demographics of her district, you know, it's not unreasonable to imagine that she has some voters that would have those beliefs who would be open to voting for her, uh, but not, you know, not be as comfortable with a candidate who is a full-throated, hardcore progressive, as uh, Warnock and Ossoff are, uh, you know, by Georgia standards, of course. Notably, some of those people who may have these concerns that she may be speaking to are the precise people that she advocated for taking stimulus checks away from. <laughs> like the higher middle-income people who, I guess, may be concerned about the national debt. Um, and ultimately, in the, in the final plan, Checks were taken away from from some group of people um, due to movement in the Senate, not specifically because of Bordeaux's involvement. Um, but it's just interesting to me that that's the place that she landed herself. I it, to me, it, I guess it it is this a reminder again that her belief is that the seventh congressional district is a very close district 
maybe in some ways closer than the sixth and, and much less safe for her reelection than for Lucy McBath's over in the sixth. Um, and then I, the other thing that I, I would of, agree with her on that point. And the other thing I would say, too, is that the likelihood of her being redistricted into a district that is worse for her is is much higher than McBath says, I think. Yeah. So I I thought of that, too, when I saw this letter. I guess that's kind of what what shines through in the strategic choice that she's making. Um, and so, I, you know, you can extrapolate from that that in the suburbs, they still believe that um, – sort of the the full-throated backing without a nod to things like the debt um, and the need to at least be moderate or uh, temperamentally conservative in the way that you approach an issue um, is an important thing that they feel they need to do. And so, I, you know, ultimately we're going to see if that's successful for her. Um, it's tied up a little bit in redistricting politics, but obviously I'm sure she's going to run for re-election and um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if this is the message going forward that maybe she achieved something by making the legislation a little more targeted or advocating that it be more targeted, which feels like a very 2009, 2010 Democratic type argument and one that's very different from the one that you're hearing from from Warnock and Ossoff. Bordeaux's positioning there is a little bit in, of a lens into some of the fractures that emerged among Democrats in final passage of this bill. It is useful to note at the top, though, this was a bill that was introduced at $1.9 trillion. And when you look back at the experience in 2009-2010, the main pressure from more conservative Democrats was to lower the overall price tag of the Recovery Act in the Obama administration. This time around, the $1.9 trillion that was introduced by Joe Biden is the same $1.9 trillion that's going to pass both the House and the Senate. And so when we're talking about some of the fractures here among Democrats, it's a little bit of like biting around the edges at what was a very large piece of legislation. But some of that did occur on um, the payment of unemployment insurance, the levels that that should be paid at, and the length that people should continue to get enhanced unemployment. And then there was a lot of... uh, there was a lot of disappointment and anger on progressives part that the $15 minimum wage was ultimately pulled from the Senate bill. And that not only was it pulled on these procedural concerns about the parliamentarian, but even if you didn't have those concerns, it appeared that ultimately there really aren't 50 democratic votes for a $15 minimum wage. Um, it was opposed by Joe Manchin, Arizona's Kristen Cinema, uh, Angus King from Maine, John Tester from Montana and then both senators from Delaware, Tom Carper and Chris Coons, and both senators from New Hampshire, uh, Shaheen and Hassan. Luke, as I watched all this happen, you know, ultimately to me, it actually didn't matter all that much about the final passage of the bill. That didn't really ever seem to be in doubt. But it was, I think, a lens into how these fights will continue to play out when you get to other pieces of the Biden agenda. And so do you have any concerns from this experience about lingering tension within the party or the party not really being united enough, at least among its Senate members, not really being united enough to govern effectively uh, until the next election? I mean, <laughs> I find that I find that question 
pretty silly based on the fact that we've just talked about how they successfully passed in the Senate a $1.9 trillion plan uh, to revitalize the economy. And so while this, you know, $15 minimum wage is something that Joe Biden campaigned on, it is a thing that a lot of Democrats think should happen. Um, it is not unanimous that, in the opinion of all Democrats that it should happen yet. And it was clearly something that I think a lot of Democrats believed could hold this bill up. And I, I, you know, I haven't read statements from all the people that voted against the $15 minimum wage being part of this package. But I, I, I think there is at least some consideration that they're paying, you know, paying to the fact that the economy isn't a vulnerable state and this bill needs to get out immediately and that this fight over the $15 minimum wage could slow that down. And I, I I would be interested to know if that was the logic in some of those no votes of just being like, we can address this later. Let's get this bill out and on the president's desk so that we can start helping people. Um, obviously, a $15 minimum wage would also help people. But I, I think if, if it, the cost was another month or another couple weeks, of this bill not getting signed, it's not worth it because people are literally dying every day because of vaccines not getting in arms. And while, yes, getting people paid more money for their work is incredibly important, you know, getting the stimulus checks in people's hands right now, I think, is, is also important. And if a couple months from now we can get the $15 minimum wage done or any increase in the minimum wage, like, I, I, I'm perfectly... Uh, okay, I would sleep well at night making that decision to get this bill out there. And I, I suspect that is part of the reason those Democrats voted the way they did. And generally, I agree with you. Um, but I did notice that the conduct of this negotiation seemed to value particularly the opinion of Joe Manchin, but in general, the opinions of Manchin and Cinema and some of the more moderate members of the Senate caucus. And progressives felt burned in some ways, burned on both the $15 minimum wage issue, and then some griping about this idea that Democrats promised $2,000 stimulus checks during the Senate runoffs, and here we are with a bill that lands at $1,400. Um, what do you think of that line of criticism and and whether or not, and I guess how Joe Biden deals with that because this is a governing coalition that he does need to hold together and do more than just pass this bill, even though it is a, a large historic relief package. So I, I'll start with the checks first. This is an argument that I don't understand why it's being had, because one, at the time when the promise was made for $2,000 checks, that was during the negotiations for the previous rescue bill, December relief bill that passed after Donald Trump lost, and but still during the runoffs. And so there was a period of time, and the initial period that promise was made was before the bill had passed, where Biden had said he wanted the, the December relief package to have $2,000 checks, where uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock said they wanted that, and then, you know, uh, after not supporting any checks at all, Loeffler and Purdue just woke up and decided, oh, we want $2,000 checks too, conveniently, at the same time that Donald Trump said that. And so... Only after Donald Trump said yeah, that. Yeah, right, after Trump said that. And so the when thing... When they had never been close to that for the entire year where we've been talking about COVID relief. 
exactly. Um, which, you know, I, I'm sure was just an honest awakening on their parts of the importance of direct relief to people. Had nothing to do with the poll numbers on that subject. I am certain. Um, Welcome to the resistance, Kelly and David. <laughs> that's right. We're, we're happy to have you. Um, but, you know, jokes aside, like... Yes, like, I would love another, you know, $600 again. But, like, I had always understood that promise. Like, literally every single time I heard them say that, I understood that promise as, we think you should get a total of $2,000. Like, I, I always, 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 always thought that's what they meant. And so, the you know, could people have been a little bit be better in their messaging in the period after the December bill passed, you know, to the runoff election? Sure. But I, I just think a lot of this is like bad faith arguing on the parts of the people who are pushing it the hardest because like it was pretty clear to me what they meant and what everyone meant was gigging it up to a total of $2,000. Um, and, and to just act like this is some big betrayal and we should all be, you know, angry at our elected Democrats. I just, I just don't buy it at all because it's just so disingenuous. Like, it's coming from a lot of people who are never happy. <laughs> So, you know, on that front, I, I am sympathetic because, again, like an extra $600 would help me a lot. And I'm, I know there's a ton of people that that would help a lot. But to act like that it is a betrayal is just a bridge too far, in my opinion. Yeah, I think specifically on that point, to me, the criticism is really cheap. Like if you want more relief, more direct cash relief for people, advocate for another $2,000. Many lawmakers in in the progressive caucus in the U S house have advocated for recurring monthly $2,000 checks. And I think that that's fine. Um, that obviously wasn't in this bill. And I don't think that that's something that would have had the votes of mansion or cinema. And so again, you come back to the question of whether you delay relief on time sensitive programs, like unemployment insurance to get this done, whether you actually have the votes to do that or not. And whether if you want to apply leverage to have house progressives withhold their own votes whether you have a realistic path to actually extracting the concessions that you are hoping to get and part of the challenge of the reconciliation process in itself is um is that the the high, at a high level the price tag of the bill in its entirety is set at the beginning of the process and so there wasn't a lot of room for that kind of negotiation because when you hold out leverage to add some other big spending item, you have to then be willing to advocate for what should come out. And as we've talked about, nearly everything in that bill feels vital for recovery and moving forward from this crisis that we've been in. Um, but in general, I do think that Biden is going to have to navigate the differences between these two wings um, and that, to me, is going to come forward, I think, going to come forward most pointedly on the question of the filibuster. Luke, you sent me a clip of Joe Manchin from West Virginia on Meet the Press talking about the filibuster this morning and some sense of how that might impact future legislative negotiations. Where where do you think we're headed in on that subject? On that front, I found it very interesting that uh, Joe Manchin continue to hold by the, I think the minority should have its ability to speak, but a lot of people are missing a very clear doorway that he just like slammed open in this interview, which he said he would, he is willing to make it harder. And, uh, you know, to just quote him, if you want to make it 
a little more painful, make him stand there and talk. I'm willing to look at any way we can, but I'm not willing to take away the involvement of the minority. And, you know, hopefully he's saying what I think he's saying there, which is that he supports the talking filibuster, which is, I mean, basically my position, you know, depending on how the exact rule works, I personally think if you are willing to stand up in the Senate and blab your mouth and not leave, uh, then like, sure, yeah, you can do that. The thing that I like just can't attack, you know, stand by is like some staffer sends an email and then, you know, you have to have 60 votes for something. Uh, I, I think it... It makes sense if people are willing to be in the chamber and make their argument and stay on topic, you know, not reading green eggs and ham or something. Uh, like, I think I think that's fine. And I think there is actually value to that um, because it does it forces them to articulate what their objection is. Uh, but, you know, to, to just not even have to stand up for what you believe is right, I guess, is the way you think about it in the filibuster context. I don't think that makes any sense at all. And so hopefully Manchin is signaling here, and uh, if you listen to the whole interview, I think he is, at least to some extent, that he he wants the Republicans to work with them. Uh, and if they're not going to be willing to do that, uh, then I think he is going to be a lot more open to reform on the issue uh, if not out, you know, he's not going to get rid of it entirely, but it seems like he might be willing to make it harder to do filibusters, which at this point I, is incredibly valuable because right now it literally just takes an email <laughs> to do it and then it's done. Uh, and I think that would be a massive improvement. You just reminded me that in the next Republican filibuster, they're going to read the entire collection of Dr. Seuss because Dr. Seuss has been canceled. Um, that's what is forthcoming. A topic I don't really for another take, day. <laughs> you know, so I don't really want to take that tangent, but you, you just gave me that realization. Yeah, the only, the thing, when you sent me this this morning, I had a little bit of skepticism about the idea that bringing back the talking filibuster is the reform that will allow a bunch of progressive legislation to move forward. And I think, you know, I'm kind of neither here nor there on that specific question to me, there's the underlying question of whether or not the main items on Joe Biden's agenda are going to have 50 Democratic votes to get through the Senate. And sort of no matter what form the filibuster is in, or even if it's eliminated, ultimately you need the 50 Democratic votes. And so my concern about the idea of reform and just bringing back the talking filibuster, but not getting rid of the whole thing is like, if you support the bills that are going to come up on this agenda, then you will structure the rules in a way that is going to get them heard, get them passed, get them signed into law. And if you don't, my concern about reform is that you hide behind the filibuster in whatever form it's in to avoid having to get out there and say, actually, at the end of the day, I don't support this thing that Joe Biden has endorsed. And so that question to me, even if you do reform, is still unanswered until you know, until we have to listen to Ted Cruz for 18 straight hours before we actually get to vote on the bill. Yeah. And, and I, I think just as a preview for coming attractions, I, I really think they're going to nuke the filibuster or significantly reform it on voting rights because the Republicans are making Joe Manchin's job really easy there. Um, and so I, I think they're not considering the consequences of the actions there. But again, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that later because it's, it's definitely not an issue that's going away. I have one very specific gripe about 
the stimulus bill and its reception, particularly from Republicans. And then, and then let's move on and talk about vaccines. Luke, I have watched on Twitter. I, for some reason, I decided to spend a lot of this weekend on Twitter and I came to find yet again, it's a terrible place. Um, a lot of griping about the minimum wage and a lot of griping about this very narrow state and local government funding issue from a lot of leading Republican strategists and people with connections to Governor Kemp or former Senator Leffler. And to sort of break this down a little bit here, Republican strategists have been making this completely incomprehensible argument that somehow John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock supported a stimulus bill that cost Georgia billions of dollars in relief, and that if our two former Republicans had been there, that in some alternate reality, Georgia would have gotten billions more dollars in relief than it got because John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock sold Georgia short. Now, specifically, this argument is about $350 billion in state and local aid, aid that'll help save jobs in the public sector, help save the jobs of teachers, police officers, firefighters, and other public employees. Um, And the real policy issue here is that this aid is distributed on a basis based on a state's unemployment rate instead of on a basis based on the number of people in the state. And because Georgia never really closed because of COVID-19, we have a lower unemployment rate, which means under the formula adopted in the stimulus bill, we're going to get less money than we would have gotten if you'd done it based on the number of people we have. And on the one hand, there's some sense in which I could agree with some criticism of this because the reason Georgia has a low unemployment rate is because we never really closed down and it would be good to have more federal money to give people the resources that they need, the protections that they need to be safe at work because more Georgians than Californians or New York are still going to work because this state never really gave them true protection from getting COVID at work. But on the other hand, this idea that Leffler and Purdue would have delivered all of this billions of dollars in aid that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock didn't, it like blows my mind because they had the opportunity to do this literally three months ago. And Leffler and Purdue spent the entire year opposing state and local government aid that they called a blue state bailout. And so my question for you, Luke, is Republicans have started this call for larger government handouts that would balloon the government's debt for states that have rightly focused on supporting our business leaders and getting our states back and getting our state's economy back on track. Why are all these Republicans so interested in welfare all of a sudden? Uh, I, I, I don't know, because I, I mean, it, a very serious question. Yeah, very serious question, because <laughs> uh, you know, I'm also confused, too, because if my recollection is correct, Kemp basically, you know, not to put words in his mouth, but to paraphrase was like, oh, we don't even need it. Like you know, the same local governments don't need money. We're fine. He's uh, kind of gone back and forth. Yeah, he's, he, I, I, I agree. I think that is the most fair thing to say, that he has not been consistent on that topic. Let's put it that way. And so for me, I think this is just a clear sign of how incredibly hard of a time they are having arguing against this bill. And they really should you know, count their lucky stars that Loeffler and Purdue aren't in there because it protects the Republican brand uh, from 
you know, having even more Republicans not vote for this bill because none of the Republicans in the House or Senate voted for this bill. And so that means the entire Georgia Republican delegation voted against one of the most popular bills that has you know ever been polled. Um, so, you know, smart move on them strategically. Uh, and so they're just like trying to find whatever they possibly can to argue that this bill is bad and is going to hurt Georgians somehow. The other issue here, I think, that's really remarkable to me is the fact that, like, if I was Governor Kemp and I was making this criticism, there's a logical, like, next paragraph that would be in my statement about, like, why I'm upset about not getting more money. That paragraph would include the things I would do with the more money. <laughs> because, you know, if you're saying the federal government is giving me some money and I wish they would give me more, I would say that, like, I want you to give me more money so I can do X. And I think there's, a like, a reason that they're not saying that, which is that the people of Georgia slash the federal government would not like what they're going to do with that money uh, because I suspect they're going to do what they always do with with budget, you know, windfalls, which is make a tax cut. So I, I, I suspect that he does not like the fact that Georgia's not giving as much money because it will make doing an eventual tax cut harder. That is pure speculation on my part, but I will not be shocked if uh, it is you know not borne out by the government trying to pursue a tax cut. Um, for, for what it's worth in the AJC, that type of dynamic of more federal relief, meaning more budget room for the state to do a larger tax cut, after the House are, has already passed a state income tax cut in the last couple of weeks, the idea was that that tax cut could grow if and when a federal windfall comes to Georgia. That's, you know, not plucked completely out of thin air. That's a dynamic that's recognized elsewhere. Yes, r- rarely am I uh, having uh, unique ideas on the, on the subject of Republicans pursuing tax cuts. Um, but, you know, again, going back to, you know, <laughs> Governor Boggs's second paragraph that would be in that sentence, uh, it, it feeds into the vaccine distribution problem we, we've had in Georgia, which is, you know, according to a GPB article from a couple days ago, so, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm throwing that disclaimer in there. Maybe this isn't true at this exact moment, but it definitely was true, you know, on, on when, when this article came out at the beginning of the month um georgia is dead last of the united states uh states because guam and puerto rico are behind us on vaccine distribution and i mean to me it's just remarkable that governor kemp did not say like we need more money for vaccine distribution because we're having some problems uh because to me that that would be the obvious argument that he could make that like why he has this position um but that again would I, I, I'm so, I'm so frustrated, Kyle, on this one, and and so I'm going to ask you a question, on you know, because maybe you, you you're so much fairer than I am to to most human beings, uh, especially Governor Kemp. And so the thing that like I've been racking my brain about is that Governor Kemp's staff, and I think Governor Kemp himself has referred to himself as the vaccine governor. I think it's more that they've adopted a messaging approach that wants to make him look active on this issue and less so that they've given him a new nickname. So like, why do you think that the state would allow itself to be the last, the dead last out of the 50 states in vaccine distribution and also set yourself up as the vaccine governor? <laughs> like, what, what, what do you make of that? Well, I want to say before we get into vaccines, there's one last little bit on the whole federal aid debate that is just 
makes my head explode. And that is at the same time that they are complaining about all this billions of dollars in federal aid that's not coming to Georgia because John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are radical liberals or whatever. They are also rejecting nearly $2 billion in federal aid for healthcare programs in the middle of a pandemic, which obviously could also help play a role in this vaccine distribution problem. Um, you know, it, to me, it's a little bit difficult to parse exactly what's going on with vaccine distribution. Um, experts who've looked at this, including including an often quoted public health expert, Dr. Amber Schmidtke, have said that there are a few different things that that are going on here that are concerning and that we could use a greater understanding of. One is that Governor Kemp defends the place that the state is in by saying that we are among the best states in distributing vaccines to people who are over 65, and they have been consistent on the fact that that group of people, and this is correct, is typically among the most vulnerable people to COVID-19, and that getting vaccines out to that population, getting as much of that population vaccinated as possible, is effective in reducing the number of people who die because of COVID-19. And given the place that we are in, where we have not significantly dissuaded the number of infections of COVID-19, because we never really closed the state down, never required a statewide mask mandate, didn't do everything we could to keep the infection from spreading. Amidst all of those challenges and bad decisions, it is a good thing to ensure as best you can, that as few a number of people die from COVID if they get it. And getting vaccines in vulnerable people is a good way to do that. At the same time, that has led to kind of a rigid uh, qualification that it appears has contributed to the fact that Georgia has somewhere in the ballpark of eight or 900,000 doses of the vaccine sitting in storage, not getting into people's arms. And here, too, the governor is saying that many of those doses are being held back by private providers and not the state. And it's not clear that the state can force those private providers to not hold those doses back, I guess, assuming they're planning for second doses and wanting to guarantee that that supply is on hand. And so another line of policymaking that some experts have said the state needs to do is to expand the number of ways it's distributing the vaccine to make a greater effort on getting vaccines to more vulnerable populations by using mobile vaccination clinics and by doing better outreach to let people know that the vaccine is safe, that it's effective, and this is how you access it. And then at the same time, up until the last week or so, there's been a lot of pushing to widen the eligibility for the vaccine, one, to include teachers, who Governor Kemp has wanted to have back in the classroom, but also to include other vulnerable people and to widen eligibility in a way that you're getting more of these doses out the door faster because you haven't bottled up eligibility into one small group that has been pretty well served and that you may be having some difficulty getting the vaccination rate up from, I think it's like 60% of people over 65 up into 70, 80, 90, because maybe some of those people are reluctant. Maybe they're not getting the outreach message, whatever the case may be. But that all of these things are really a bigger question of logistics of how to get the vaccine out the door as quickly as possible. And I struggle to identify the exact pain points 
But I think that when you see other states have more successful vaccination rates than we do, it's obvious that there's some problems that need to be fixed there. More money, more coordination with the federal government, and a better messaging strategy from Governor Kemp, I think all could push us in the right direction. I, I just don't understand why these like very small, obvious things, in my opinion, just haven't gone through. Basically, every single person I've talked to signed up for the vaccine in multiple places. Um, in my own, uh, you know, the health department uh, here locally, like there's a day where I got emails. I got an email. It's like, hey, like we had an issue. Please sign up again if you're still interested in the vaccine. And every time I would sign up, I would get that email again. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like those are things that like should have been predictable issues to, to face. And the fact that it took us, you know, a couple months into the process of people getting vaccines for the state to be like, hey, maybe we should just have a statewide sign up service. And then what I think is worse here for Kemp is. I and this is something we've I've consistently said that is annoying to me about this administration is that I give people slack during crises, right? Like no one could have predicted that there would be a global pandemic. But the thing that like Kemp is consistently really bad at, I think, is adopting this approach that if you just have a really simple line and you stick to it and you just keep saying the same things over and over, no matter what the circumstances are, like, you'll be fine. And, like, that just hasn't been borne out in the reality of what's going on. Because, like, if Kemp was on TV every day saying, you know, like, we have budget shortfalls, we're having these issues, this is why I think vaccines aren't getting into arms, and we're working on it, and, you know, we could use help from the federal government, or from whoever, like, whatever, because, again... One of the failures here is to not understand what the failure is. I, and I really hope here that, like, Brian Kemp knows what it is. <laughs> and he's just choosing not to tell us for some reason. Because the only alternative is Brian Kemp has no idea why Georgia is last in vaccine distribution and isn't, you know, pushing people for the answers on that. Because I don't expect him to, you know, ride down on some white horse and vaccinate everyone uh, personally. But I do expect him to be on top of it and to understand what's going on and be able to communicate the successes and failures. You know, I, I just don't have a sense that he's doing that. And I know, uh, Kyle, before we start recording, you, you mentioned that you're in Florida and that, like, you're seeing... Not, not you know, not the progressive darling, but like Ron DeSantis, he's on TV like all the time. My mom gets Florida TV, you know, on the coastline with Georgia, and like she tells me that like I see him all the time, and he's always, you know, talking about vaccine distribution, and they seem to be working very hard on it, and it hasn't been without controversy, but at least he seems to be out front of it, and I, I just don't, I don't feel that from Kemp, and maybe I'm just not looking in the right places, uh, but it definitely seems like he's not being as communicative as people like DeSantis are. I, I will say this about the experience in Florida. You're starting to see news in the press that the supply of vaccines is increasing. They got the third one dose vaccine, the J and J vaccine that's going to start to roll out. President Biden said that by the end of May, there should be enough doses that have been produced to vaccinate every adult in the country who wants one and I will say that as those announcements started to come out in the last couple of weeks, you could feel that in the access to vaccines here in Florida. Um, my Both of my parents have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine now. Um, my dad had a couple of different opportunities to get his first dose of the vaccine in the last few days, ultimately got one at a federal distribution site um, in 
in the county that we live in. Um, and teachers now are eligible in Florida for vaccines and can get those vaccines at any uh, retail pharmacy like CVS or Publix. Um, and so my sister and brother-in-law, who are both teachers, are also scheduled to get vaccines. Now, they're a little bit older than me, um, but because they're in the classroom every day, they were made a priority population. And, and it seems that they were able, despite some hurdles, despite having to get up early and sit on registration sites with CVS and Publix and Sam's Club and all the different retail options that are offering, it just felt like things have opened up down here in a way that it doesn't appear that they have in Georgia. And I think to some extent that may stem from the strategic choices that Kemp has made. And I think some of it is wrapped up in this having on hand the second dose of the vaccine so that everybody who's over 65 who got their first dose can get their second one. But that that in some ways is the wrong choice because supply is increasing. Let's spread the eligibility because those second doses are going to be there when you need them. Um, and then the other thing because what I was going to say is that like, you know, I know some people who are still waiting on their appointment for their second dose. So it seems like that's not even being done effectively. I know that's the logic behind it, but it, it's getting up on the, the limit for when they say you should get the second shot for some of them. So I, I'm equally frustrated on that point, too. And then the other thing on, on DeSantis, I think the most charitable way to describe DeSantis's vaccination strategy is he's very interested in getting the vaccine in the arms of his voters. Florida is a very old state, a lot of senior citizens here. So it is lucky that getting the vaccines in the arm of DeSantis's voters also is an effective way to get the vaccine in the arms of some of the state's most vulnerable people. And so on that point, I will say that DeSantis has been out at vaccine sites, it seems like every other day, announcing a new opening, announcing more Publixes are going to distribute the vaccine, whatever the case may be. But at the same time, he there has been some controversy around people close to the governor getting access to the vaccine, like a like planned communities of primarily elderly voters in wealthy, very Republican-leaning areas you've had a lot of very specifically organized vaccination opportunities that somehow pop up in those neighborhoods. And you haven't seen, I, I mean, to me, equity is a big problem in Florida. You haven't seen the same kind of effort uh, in the communities of people who are not likely to vote for DeSantis. Um, and I, you know, credit to Governor Kemp. I, I don't think you've seen that problem. Um, and in fact, you've seen Governor Kemp go to, Morehouse College and talk about uh, increasing access to the vaccine and reducing hesitancy among African Americans. I mean, that that being a big priority of his. But like, the numbers got to show that the shots are getting in the arms. And until the shots are in the arms, this is a this is going to remain a problem. Um, and so, you know, it, I think it would be helpful if there are real bottlenecks that they're having trouble figuring out, just being like, this is what's holding us up. And at this point in this crisis, it shouldn't be because websites don't work or because phone lines are clogged. Like those are the kinds of things that should have been ironed out a while ago. And if it's a problem of hesitancy or outreach, then that is, as you mentioned, Luke, that is what this money should be used for. And Governor Kemp should demonstrate that he's that he's doing that. Um, in it, you know, every time you see his name in these articles, it's let me reshift the data a little bit to make it look a little better because we are doing good on seniors. And, and that's what I said I would do. And so that's what I'm doing. 
Yeah, and that, and that's my frustration is that Kemp is always trying to like move the goalposts and say, actually, we're doing a great job. <laughs> it's just like you're not doing a great job if you're last. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's really, you know, if you're if you're 30th, you can make an argument like we've had, you know, but it's just like he he's never pushing the ball forward in the way that I feel like it should be. And he's never owned this crisis. You know, he's not gone as far as Trump did in saying, like, I don't take any blame at all uh, or any responsibility, whichever Trump's quote was. But, like, he he still is trying to make it look like everything is fine and they're doing a perfect job and anyone who is uh, not acknowledging that is, is being unfair. And I'm just, I'm frustrated that that is the approach he continues to take because... Again, like it's a crisis. Things go wrong. I, I I'm very lenient on people, you know, when they're being honest with me on, you know, the criticism. And you know, I, I wish I could be on here saying that, like, I'm, you know, proud of Governor Kemp for being honest and telling us why he's, we're struggling and, you know, showing us that he has a plan and that he's working on it. Well, I will say a, a couple of things. You know, we talked about teachers not being on the priority list for vaccines, and then a couple of weeks later, the priority list was expanded and teachers were on the list. This problem, I think, is different than Governor Kemp has consistently refused the Medicaid expansion. He hasn't changed his mind since he became governor, and it doesn't appear he's going to change his mind anytime soon. The position that he holds on that is a bad one. Whereas with this vaccine stuff, Georgia, I think, likely will be in a better place in two or three weeks or a month. But the fact that it just feels a little bit slower in Georgia than it does in other places is the problem. And and hopefully they get it fixed. The other place I will commend governor Kemp on is you saw Mississippi and Texas say that they were going to get rid of the restrictions that they had put in place, their mask mandates where they had them other restrictions that limited crowds and businesses and other things that were put into place in those States, basically sending the message that, Vaccines are here, they're getting out there, so let's get back out in our communities and start up our states again. And credit to Governor Kemp for not taking that opportunity to just say everything's going to be great, everything's going great now, but saying, delivering the message that Georgians do not need to let their guard down, uh, that this is still a problem, and that we're going to hold to the protections that we've had um, for at least a little while longer now. You can criticize that that baseline of protections wasn't good enough, but there was clearly a trend in conservative politics to let everybody say we're reopening this week, and and Governor Kemp didn't take that. So good for him. Let's move on to our final topic here, and that is that tomorrow, Monday, March 8th, is going to be crossover day in the legislature. Um, We, I feel like in some ways, have had less to talk about about the legislature with the glaring exception of voting restrictions. Um, But there are a bunch of other issues that are maybe less significant moving forward in the legislature. Um, So we're going to talk about some of the bills that might get considered and um, some of the issues that are, that are still not getting consideration. Luke, just to start here, voting issues do remain a premier issue in this legislative session And as of Sunday afternoon on the rules calendar in the state Senate, the state Senate is scheduled to consider at least 12 pieces of voting legislation on crossover day. The the House has already passed its big omnibus bill of voting restrictions. Um, So many of those ideas are going to be there in the mix in the final days. And then the only other 
somewhat significant development was that during the debate on the House bill, House Speaker David Ralston backed an idea for giving every Georgian a free ID that could be used for voting. Notably, it could also be used to fly on planes with TSA. They changed the voter ID that you need to do that. Not voter ID, the ID that you need to do that recently. Um, You know, I think that otherwise, though, that issue is largely where we've left it in in the last conversations and isn't really going to come to a resolution until Sine die. Um, Anything you want to add on voting before we move on? Well, I, I will say I appreciate that Ralston considered the fact of putting in the free ID. I don't agree with that policy, but if you are going to do it, I think that is a great thing to do to you know, make it easy and free to get the ID that they're going to require. So that's good. Um, uh, the, the other thing I would say, too, I, I think those Senate bills will be interesting to watch because um, there's a lot of proposals out there, and it's unclear where the consensus is on a lot of them and so we might get a better idea of what the final package will look like based off of which one of those voting bills get the most support if some of them don't pass if some of them don't get brought up i i think that will be interesting to watch here but i I still am operating under the assumption that the house version is the one most likely to get on kemp's desk and that that is the baseline version um and I, I'm still very curious of how the Senate will handle the elimination of no excuse absentee voting, uh, because they, they seem poised past that. Um, and I, I don't know if Kemp is serious about his resistance to getting rid of that or not. Yeah, look, the elimination of no excuse absentee balloting is in Senate Bill 71, and that is on the rules calendar tomorrow. Um, and I do believe that there was a motion in a Senate committee on to keep no excuse absentee balloting. And that motion couldn't get a second from a Republican in that committee. So that was sort of the first piece of evidence that this issue was going to go at least through crossover day. And and maybe some members of the Republican caucus were going to push it all the way to the end, um, even though it's been openly opposed by leading figures like Kemp, Duncan, and Ralston. The other place that there could be some interesting use of leverage on an issue in this last month of legislative session is Democrats actually may be able to give decisive votes on whether or not you'll be allowed to gamble in one of several different forms in the state. There are bills moving forward on horse racing, betting on horse racing, and betting on uh, sports competitions. Um, Both of those are moving forward in the form of constitutional amendments. The Senate has actually passed the constitutional amendment in support of sports betting. The, The horse racing one, I think, is getting less favorable consideration so far. The interesting thing about these and the fact that they are a constitutional amendment means that Democrats do have to supply some of the votes necessary to get it to two-thirds of support in both chambers. And that brings up the issue of what Democrats may demand in exchange for their supporting of of gambling issues. Um, And the word that I've heard in, in coverage of the legislature this session is the chance to water down or defeat voting restriction legislation is something that Democrats are seeking to use that leverage on. 
Now, interestingly, at least one and maybe more of these bills will get out of their original chamber before crossover day, meaning the opportunity that Democrats may take to kill a betting bill if they don't get their way on voting restrictions is likely to happen in the final hours of sine die. So that's going to be another issue to keep an eye on. Uh, But Luke, if gambling legislation does move forward, if Georgia voters get to decide whether or not they want to allow more gambling in Georgia, um, some of that revenue from that is going to go to needs-based scholarships, thanks to an amendment from Democratic Senator Elena Parent. Any thoughts on the the prospects of these gambling issues and and whether or not moving forward on gambling in Georgia is the right thing to do. Well, personally, I, I'm I'm against expanding gambling in Georgia. I, I just don't think the um, social costs are worth it. In, in my opinion, I know some people find it fun and many people are very responsible with gambling, uh, but a lot of people aren't. And yeah, I, I just don't see the the big benefit. But if we are going to expand gambling, I would hope and I'm happy to see Elena Pairing and other Democrats are working to ensure that that money is going to go towards funding education, towards funding, you know, important aspects of the state's uh, needs that are currently underfunded and are typically underfunded. So on, on that front, I, I hope that Democrats use maximum pressure to you know, see that if we do move forward on gambling, that it is done in a responsible way, in a way that actually helps the state overall. And if there are opportunities for them to use this legislation as leverage, I'd say go for it 100%. I mean, this is the nature of politics, that you make deals and have negotiations. And so if there is an opportunity there, I hope Democrats are taking full advantage of it. Because, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the Republicans are pursuing the voting restrictions, voting suppression bills for political reasons. And so uh, I, I see no harm in holding up Democratic support for uh, this bill for equally political reasons. So that that's fine with me, especially since many Democrats don't support it at, at all. Now, as far as how likely it is to pass, I mean, it's hard to tell because, you know, every session is going to be the se- session that gambling finally passes. Uh, but, you know, so so far uh, that that's never borne out to be true. So it'll be interesting to watch this this session. The other issue that's probably worth watching on crossover day is the bipartisan effort to repeal the state's citizens arrest statute. It was passed unanimously out of the House Judiciary Committee a few days ago. Um, As we speak on Sunday afternoon, it is actually not currently on the rules calendar for crossover day. Now, as veterans of the legislature know, that rules calendar gets updated and changed throughout the day. So it's not necessarily a signal that there are any major hurdles for this bill to clear in terms of getting the support that it needs. Uh, Democrats and progressive groups have been very enthusiastic and supportive of Governor Kemp's proposal to repeal citizens' arrest. I mean, it doesn't seem to have generated any real opposition among conservative-leaning groups or Republican lawmakers. Um, The path forward on that seems pretty good. Um, Now, if if there was a problem, it might be likely to crop up on crossover day. Um, But again, this was in the governor's state of the state. It's got bipartisan support the chance that it doesn't move forward seems pretty slim to me. Yeah, I hope you're right. <laughs> but the legislature is always full of surprises. But I, I, I think on this one, 
since it is a priority of Governor Kemp and it's not got the same valence as stager ground issues, I, I think a lot of people that I've talked to just view this as a really outdated, bad you know, policy. And so I, I, I'm hoping that it will move slow, uh, smoothly through the legislature. Beyond those issues, there's really, there's a long list that we have here of smaller legislative issues, ones that I think certainly have a constituency, but at least to me are in some ways technical, in some ways not really representative of ideological divides between the parties. And so many of these issues I think are, are probably likely to move forward, um, some contentious and some not very contentious at all, um, legislation to increase penalties against distracted driving, legislation that would allow nursing home and hospital visitors even during a pandemic, um, legislation that would stop the state from paying either indicted or suspended constitutional officers dating back to Georgia's former insurance commissioner, uh, continuing to receive a taxpayer-funded paycheck while he was suspended as the commissioner of insurance and while he was being indicted. I can't even remember what crimes he is alleged to have done. but Insurance uh, fraud. He's, uh, it was, was insurance kind of, fraud. Was it insurance fraud? Yes, it was like insurance crimes. Great, of course. You know, Georgia, Georgia gets its opportunity to be like Illinois every once in a while. Those are Those are a few issues that are likely to get consideration on crossover day and still be standing for the last month of legislative session. Also a couple of other smaller ideas that have already passed either the house or the Senate and have a chance of making it to final passage by the end of the legislative session. Things like to go cocktails, making it a felony to steal packages from porches, having the state adopt permanent daylight savings time. Um, those are, are some of many ideas that are, uh, have a chance to move forward, but a lot of them in that that same kind of range, technical issues um, that aren't necessarily anything to write home about. But one bill, Luke, that I think you and I are both uh, enthusiastic about and, and maybe a little bit surprised at its source is a proposal that would increase the salaries of nearly all of our state constitutional officers, as well as state lawmakers, including nearly doubling the salary of state lawmakers. Uh, under this bill, each member of the General Assembly would have their salary increase from a whopping $16,200 per year to a just absurd $29,000 per year. Um, barely more. It'd be worth knowing if course, I don't think that those wages are actually set by the federal minimum wage, but uh, you're in federal $15 minimum wage territory at that annual salary. Luke, this is a bill uh, sponsored by Wes Cantrell, pretty notable Republican, but it also has a bipartisan list of sponsors. And from both the Republicans and Democrats that I saw that have commented on this bill, there was a desire to open up the opportunity to serve in the legislature to more people from different backgrounds and not just limit it to people who are independently wealthy, people who are retired, or people who are lawyers with flexible schedules. Yeah, and I I, I think that's great. I, I do I do want to just note the irony of uh, you know passing a pay cut right before an election and then passing a pay raise right after one. Uh, but you know that that little spark of hypocrisy aside, I think this is a good thing to do 
public service in in some way should be a sacrifice, but I, I think that sacrifice should be one that people are able to make, and the sacrifice should really be, you know, to the tune of like you could be making a whole lot more money in the public, I mean, in the private sector, but now you're you know making a livable wage in in the public sector. I think that's good because I mean Georgia's a big state. You know, I'm from Camden County originally. It takes. <laughs> over five hours to go to the Capitol. And if you're the state rep for Camden County, like, like that's hard to do. And that means you have to like get an apartment during session or, you know, live with a friend or something. And so just like having some acknowledgement that like you have to survive to do this job, um, I, I think that would be good. And the other element too here is that, you know, Georgia has a lot of problems and people need to have available representatives. And so if you're giving people a little bit more money to do that job, then people could get better constituent services probably. And I, I think that is a valuable thing. And so, you know, I, I would say that, you know, legislators would be improved if they got more money and that if they could have some staff, like, I think, I think those would all be good things. I wish the legislature would look at it, but I'm happy that they are at least increasing or at least looking at increasing the salaries by this much. Uh, Cause I, I think, that really does start to get in the territory where it becomes feasible uh, for people to run for office who are from, you know, non-wealthy, non-retired backgrounds. And I think that helps because I've always liked the idea that Georgia is a citizen legislature. You know, the idea that our le our General Assembly members are primarily community members who live and work in their communities. And I think that's great. Um, but if you're going to adopt that model, I think you should... Uh, follow it through all the way you do and, you know, give them more support by pr with professional staffs and enough of a wage so that, you know, someone who is working a, you know, nine to five job most of the time could could live uh, off, you know, off their traditional job for a couple months each year. All right. So that was just a breeze through of what's going to happen on crossover day. Um, we'll have a more comprehensive look at what's going on in the legislature as these issues move forward. And of course, we won't lose sight of the biggest issue in the legislature this session, which is the consideration of those voting restrictions. Uh, but for now, we are going to leave it there. Uh, if you are a legislator or staff member listening to this, good luck on crossover day. Uh, we'll see how long it is this time, but it tends to be one of the longest and most hectic days of legislative session right up there with Sine die. And uh, for everybody else, Stay safe, and, and we'll talk to you again soon. And, and Luke, thank you, as always, for joining the podcast. Always happy to be here, especially on, you know, days we have a lot to talk about it. And it's not all bad, for once at least. And if you're still here, I don't know the final time of this episode yet. We're looking at 90 minutes of audio that I'm working with. But if you're still here at that point, we, we really appreciate you for sticking with us. All righty, I will talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.